we actually have less people coming into rotating internships than we did in the past. And so if you have less rotating interns, you're going to have less specialists because you have to do a rotating internship. Welcome to the Sawyer Event Now What, the podcast. This is a show that serves as your audio mentor in your journey as a veterinarian. And each week, our awesome host, Dr. Mariah McCauley, will be bringing you insightful, short-form interviews with happy, successful vets who are eager to share their career and clinical tips to make your life easier. So whether you're a final year vet student or a recent graduate, this podcast is your trusted companion on the pathway to success in veterinary medicine. Over to you, Mo. Welcome back to So You're a Vet, Now What? I'm your host, Dr. Mariah McCauley. This week on the pod, I am talking with Vetstagram's newest member, Dr. Alex Sigmund. Alex is a board-certified ophthalmologist who loves to share his knowledge and love for medicine through social media. In this episode, Alex shares his journey of becoming a veterinary ophthalmologist and the advice he would give to anyone pursuing the same path. At the end of the episode, we look at the shortage of veterinary ophthalmologists and what GP vets can do to help fill that gap to provide care to our patients. Now, there is so much to cover in this episode, so let's dive into it. Hey guys, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Alex Sigmund to the show. So Alex, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I am so excited. We have so much to talk about today. We are going to look at Alex's journey through the veterinary field. Like basically, Alex, like how did you become a board certified ophthalmologist? Because like, I know there are first-year graduate vets who are like, I'm kind of thinking about becoming an ophthalmologist, but I have no idea how to do it. Or maybe fourth-years who are looking at that. But then additionally, we are going to open up the can of worms here, and we are going to look at that issue of we don't have enough ophthalmologists. So what do we as GP vets, like what can we do? What can we learn? We're going to open that can of worms later, so we're going to close it right now. We'll get to it. So Alex, kind of bring us back in time to when you decided like, hey, I want to be a board certified ophthalmologist. Like, what did that journey look like for you? It's a very long journey. (laughs) (laughs) But I honestly would go back and do it all again, because it was so fun. Hard work, but fun. So during veterinary school, I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I liked every topic pretty much. I liked surgery. I liked internal medicine. I got into ophthalmology, the rotation, fortunately, and I really liked that. But I was really considering doing internal medicine because I really like puzzles and being able to kind of piece things together. So during my ophthalmology rotation, I got to see cataract surgery for the first time. And I'd never seen that before. And as soon as I saw, because they have it on a video screen, I was like, I have to do whatever it takes in order to do this, because this is one of the coolest things that I have ever seen. And to this day, I get so excited when I'm doing cataract surgery. Even my technicians laugh at me because I'm like, can you believe we're doing cataract surgery on a dog right now? How fun is that? (laughs) I still love it. And um, I basically started me on my journey of kind of delving a little deeper into ophthalmology. You know, I started doing a little bit more research because I knew that residencies for ophthalmology are actually really hard to come by and to get and just kind of trying to bolster my resume by getting involved with research of honestly any kind during vet school. So during the summers, I would go and work in a research lab at my university and was able to be on some papers. Not that I was first author, but I still got the bench top experience and uh, some of the writing 
experience, which was really helpful for later on. And then I went to the University of Tennessee for my rotating internship, which was phenomenal. And basically there, I only got probably a month's worth of ophthalmology. So my advice to anyone going into a rotating is you have to seek out every opportunity possible to go to your specialty of interest. So that's, you know, I'm going to not go on vacation because I need to spend an extra week with these people. So one, they know who I am, so they can write me recommendations. Two, to practice my skills. Uh, Because what was really challenging during your rotating internship is with only a couple of weeks, you know, maybe a month of ophthalmology, that's not enough time to really get the basics of your exam and stuff down, especially using a slit lamp, which, you know, you're not, we're not allowed to use as a student. So I got to, had to practice using that. And then funding exams, is, it's a whole other thing mm-hmm. with being uh, as complete as possible with your exam. So definitely introducing yourself as soon as you get there to whatever specialty you're getting into is um, really helpful. Just let people know your name and that you're interested. So I did that. And then we fortunately were, my University of Tennessee uh, had an opening for a resident the next year. And I applied, but I wasn't ready. uh, So I didn't Mm -hmm. get it. (laughs) Uh, And I was kind of heartbroken by that because, uh, you know, of course, I really wanted it. But that year, and this kind of figures into what we're going to talk about later, there were only nine positions in the entire country for ophthalmologists uh, for a residency. Nine. That's it? Whoa. That's it. I think at that time, there were over 60 applicants. So it is very hard to get in there. And what I ended up learning was that if people don't know who you are in the community, you're not going to get a residency, unfortunately. And you need somebody that is able to promote you, you know, and who someone can call and be like, hey, I got this application. I saw that they worked with you. What do you think about them? And so that became a little more evident to me because that first application cycle I uh, didn't really know anyone. No one really knew me. Uh, I even went to like a conference, uh, the ophthalmology conference during my rotating, which is expensive. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I got to at least hear about what people are doing in the research world with ophthalmology. But it was really challenging to introduce yourself to people just because you don't know anyone. And then everyone there with a program knows that they're one of a few programs. So they're just getting inundated with people. And so you have to like toe this line of, am I bothering these people or... Am I making myself known? Yeah. Are they even going to remember me? You definitely don't want to put a bad taste in anyone's mouth. But one way that's really helpful to get your name out there is to do a presentation at a conference. So I had been working on a research paper on... It was a retrospective of cataract surgery and raptors with the ophthalmologist at UT. And so I got to go and present that. And so people kind of got my name out there a little bit. So I didn't get to that cycle. So the next option really is, are you going to go do some type of research like a master's or do you do a specialty internship in your field of focus? So I was still kind of looking around for what was available to me. And my mentor at UT, she was like, hey, I know somebody in Florida, in Tampa, they take ophthalmology interns. So if you're interested, that would be a great program for you to do. I've already talked to them and they have an opening. Do you want it? And I was just like, yes, I guess I do. Cause I had nothing, <laughs> nothing else, but it also sounded like a, a great opportunity. And you kind of just have to say yes to anything that yeah. comes along, frankly, especially when your options may be limited. So I literally moved to Tampa, did a year long uh, specialty internship there with actually three ophthalmologists, which was amazing because that gets your name out there even more. More ophthalmologists knew my name, more could write recommendations for me who could pass the word along. 
And then I got to do a lot of uh, really cool stuff there at high volume clinics. Uh, so I got to really practice and hone my skills, both like minor surgical procedures, but also my exam skills, which are the most important, just like a physical is in general practice. So that was, I would say, invaluable to setting me up for my residency. So then I got to go, got a residency back at the University of Tennessee. I applied again the next year. Uh, and they actually took me outside of our match program since they already knew who I was. Yeah. And so that was, took the stress off a lot. So three years of residency, you are doing research, you are seeing as many cases as you possibly can, doing as many surgeries as you can, because you have minimums. You have to see a certain number of dogs, a certain number of cats, do a certain number of cataract surgeries. Okay. And so trying to get through all of that. At the very end of your residency, you take a board exam. Uh, we have a three-section exam. So that's a multiple choice section. That's about 250 questions. A surgical practical portion, which is you doing surgery, uh, two different surgeries on a cadaver eye while, while people are watching you. Oh, talk about and stress. Asking you, <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> but they're like looking at what you're doing on a video screen surrounding you and then asking you questions like, why are you using this? Why'd you do this? Can you explain this? Why did you do this? And if this <laughs> oh happened, why, what would you do? So that's pretty intense. And then there's an image recognition section where they can show you any picture from the literature, whether it's a textbook or a research article, and they can ask you a question about it. <laughs> so in my year, we had about a thousand articles that we had to know, and they could ask you anything from those articles from like the main conclusion to a standard deviation and the conclusion. So it is a very difficult exam and the ophthalmology one is notorious for being hard. Are you a new or recent veterinary graduate? If so, listen up my course, So Your Vet Now What has been put together specifically for you. We focus on the non-clinical skills, don't tune out. This is not as dull as it sounds, I promise you. In fact, almost every career problem that people face are due to not having well-developed non-clinical skills. The skills that I'm talking about are things like client communication, so you have great relationships with clients, emotional intelligence, so you've got great relationships with your teammates. Effective negotiation skills, so you can get paid what you are worth. Management of imposter syndrome and how to build formidable resilience. They're not just skills, they are prerequisites vital for success in financial and emotional well-being. This course serves as an essential stepping stone to your success. So let's take the leap together. I will be your mentor as we go through 12 modules helping you transition from being a student to being a fully rounded professional. Head to www.drdavenickel.com forward slash S-Y-A-V dash class to learn more. Now back to the show. Oh my goodness. That sounds it's brutal. Wild. And it's one of those things you're like, in my position, you almost want to say like, oh, I could never do that. But at the same time, when you get to it, you're like, I just can't wait for this to be over. <laughs> but then once you've yes. done it, you're like, yeah. <laughs> well, I think what really helped me was my residency program has existed for 25 years or so. Okay. So it was the same people, the same mentors, the same technicians, which I think was invaluable to establishing a very well-run, organized program. As you can imagine, if you have people bouncing in and out, like clinicians, uh, mentors bouncing in and out, it's going to be really hard to establish like 
a baseline of instruction. You know, I had practice exams at my disposal. Uh, we had the practicals, so we would do surgery, and it, they would treat it just like it would be on the exam. So I had, a, and I had actually had a uh, study calendar of every single week of my residency that one of the previous residents years ago apparently had made and it's just been updated and passed down from resident to resident oh my gosh that sounds so. incredible you like have that as a as like a resource that's amazing and it was like, huge oh my goodness like as i'm hearing your story like of course i did a little bit of research before this to be like okay what is the general pathway for this and it's like okay year of a rotating internship a year of specialty and or go into residency but you're like no actually it's a lot harder than that <laughs> so which i mean i guess yeah. is what you'd expect because <laughs> it really sounds like it's one of those where you have to know someone in order to get into it and as you mentioned there were nine available residency slots which is bonkers to me, quite honestly, just the fact that there's so few. So that kind of helps us pivot into that can of worms. We're going to open that up right now. Yes. <laughs> and so obviously, like right now, everyone is aware of the shortage of vets that we have in general. But we also have a shortage of specialty veterinarians and ophthalmologists, which anybody in GP has ever had to refer anything optho, we know <laughs> that there's like no ophthalmologist that we can get a hold of within a reasonable amount of time. So I would love to hear anything you have to say on, like, we're talking to a group of veterinary, like GP veterinarians here. Uh, we can't just snap our fingers and have a ton of ophthalmologists. So what are the things that we can do to be equipping this new generation of veterinarians to better handle ophthalmology situations? Not so mm -hmm. that we're going to like take cases away from the specialists by any means, but that we can provide better immediate care to our patients and our clients. So... I'll open that can of worms to you. All right. Let's dive in. <laughs> <laughs> let's go. So I think just to talk real quick about why there are so few of us, I think it really it's multifaceted. So we actually have less people coming into rotating internships than we did in the past. Um, ever since that AVMA paper came out that was talking about the financial aspects of doing a rotating internship without specializing. I mean, I know at my practice now, we usually have, you know, well, I can say that our uh, applications for rotating internships dropped by like 40, 40%, mm -hmm. 40 to 60%, something like that. And so if you have less rotating interns, you're going to have less specialists because you have to do a rotating internship. Um, and so I think this gets into a bigger can of worms, yeah. which is the financial <laughs> crisis of veterinary medicine. <laughs> ah, we're and, not going to touch that today. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of people are not going into rotating internships because of financial reasons, not because they don't want to specialize. So when you're in practice, I think it's really about building your confidence and how do you build confidence with information. So if you can just gain knowledge, uh, CEs, you know, communicating with people online, like I had people in India message me on Instagram asking like about a case, you know, yeah. and it's just like reaching out to see what opportunities are even available in your area. I've had a general veterinarian come and shadow me because she was like, I love eyes, but I'm not 100% comfortable about some stuff. Can I just come listen to you? You know, and so yeah. she followed Your me. Your shadow. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that there are more opportunities now that social media has become obviously a huge thing. Providing these resources that you can attend a CE from someone in California, you know, that's doing doing it online. And so you can yeah. tune in. Uh, of course, nothing really beats hands-on instruction. So there are some conferences now that offer wet labs and ophthalmology for like minor 
procedures like eyelid procedures or cherry eyes, um, eye removals, mm-hmm. things like that. But it's really, especially for ophthalmology, it's just about looking out there to see what is even available. And then you just have to invest the time and unfortunately the money. Hopefully yeah. your work will help with that <laughs> to build your confidence there. Because I feel like ophthalmology is accessible when you think about the clinical relevance of the treatment. So yeah, sure, I know like the pathophysiology of glaucoma, but like in the end, you need to get the pressure down. So in practice, here are the three or four medications that can lower pressure. It's just knowing about when to use them. And so that's where uh, CEs and things like that will come in. So increasing education, increasing hands-on, reaching out to your referral veterinarians that are in the area to shadow See if you can ask questions, find out when their office hours essentially are yeah. um, so you can do that. And so would you say, because I feel like eyeballs are probably one of those things that people are very polarized about in general practice. So usually yes. like, <laughs> I love eyeballs, but I don't really know much. Or they're like, I freaking hate eyeballs. They scare the crap out of me. So <laughs> even in general practice, it can be hard to like get that balance in your clinic. So I guess like, yeah, getting those hands on things, um, it's fantastic. And so if you're like, we're talking to first year graduate vets here, they have a a fair amount of knowledge. So how would you recommend they get that repetitive practice other than just like do the physical exams and keep practicing them that way? What are some, I guess, like if you were to choose, like these are three main things, like maybe it's like clinical presentation or a skill that you're like, I really, like if you're talking to your mentee, like these are the three things that I want you to really focus on this year or this three months? That is a great question. I think, I mean, your basic ophthalmic exam is going to be probably the most important thing that you can practice because you have, you know, you have a Shermer tear test, you have a fluorescein stain. Hopefully everyone has a tenometer these days because um, I think that that is a vital part of ophthalmic care. Actually, just in general, like a general vet, you have to have a tenometer because I have unfortunately seen a lot of dogs that are now blind from glaucoma because their red eye was just treated with steroids when it was glaucoma. And it's because there's no tenometer in the practice. But a tenometer will pay for itself so quickly. Um, It does take a little bit of investment at the beginning, a little bit of technique to make sure it's accurate. But I think that tenometer is definitely a vital part of the ophthalmic exam. So I think it's repetition is, I mean, you see dogs every single day. So does a, every dog need an ophthalmic exam? Maybe not, uh, depending on what, well, de- depending on what they're presenting yeah. for. But should you do one on them? Yes. If you're trying to get better at your ophthalmic exam, trying to look at the different depths of the eye. I mean, corneal disease, is it the iris or is it a fundic lesion? Is mm-hmm. it a cataract? You know, taking, and this is where I am a little out of my depth when it comes to the timing that how timing works in general practice. I know y'all are very busy, but taking that extra time in order to, I'm going to do a fundic exam on this patient. You know, I feel like almost every cat over eight years old should have a fundic exam because you can pick up on um, like hypertension. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, from your day for your day to day stuff, you know, do a Shermer exam until you're comfortable doing those, you know, are you charging for those? Probably not, but it's kind of the investment. You know, mm-hmm. are you do a do a fluorescein stain so you can kind of get the hang of how that looks on the cornea in a normal eye. I think the biggest thing that a repetition helps with is your fundic exam, because normals are uh, they vary so much in dogs. So the more fundics uh, fundic 
<laughs> the more fun you die, yeah. <laughs> fun die <laughs> that you can examine, uh, the more comfortable you'll, you'll be with discerning normal versus abnormal. Mm-hmm. And so like one of our internists, he just has a phonic exam on every single patient of his because he's like, I wasn't that good at it. And, you know, I wanted to get better. So now I do it. And now it's just part of my exam. I think my biggest advice for doing a, an ophthalmic exam is to have an order just like your physical exam. So I start from the outside in. So mm-hmm. outside, it's like, are they moving around the room? Okay. Are they bumping into things? Are they squinting? You know, then it's like menace. And then you have your palpebrals. And then you're looking at the conjunctiva and the cornea and then the lens. You just work your way back until you do a fun exam. And if you have an order, then uh, just like a physical exam, uh, you won't miss something. Or you'll at least be a little bit more confident about saying, oh, I didn't see that because I know I looked because I do the same thing yep, every same time. Same thing every time. No, I think that's awesome. And I feel like we maybe have cracked a little bit of the code of, okay, like, what do we do? We don't have enough specialists. And kind of like you said, like, get more education, get more practice. There's a lot that you can do with just a simple ophthalmoscope, even in your room. Mm-hmm. So... I think that's a, a great first step. And so if there are first year vets who are listening to this and they're like, I'm scared of eyeballs, take Alex's advice here, like get a little bit more education, keep practicing your exams. Um, you'll kind of figure out where your sticky points are and what you need to do to become a better ophthalmologist, essentially, through all of that. And additionally, if you guys have questions about what is the pathway to becoming a board certified ophthalmologist or what that journey looks like, like I know you can reach out to Alex. I'm sure he's willing to share more information. And also, if you're just, again, kind of scared about eyeballs and you want more education, Alex is doing a great job on Instagram, on social media, um, providing some little snippets of like how to handle basic um, ophthalmic emergencies or presentations. So go and check them out on Instagram. But we're going to end today's episode. So Alex, thank you so much for coming and chatting today. Yeah, thank you so much. I had a great time. All right. Till next time, guys. See ya. So that's it for another show. Thank you so much to Dr. Mariah and her guests for today's tips. And if you're interested in learning more about what we do to support early stage vets in their careers, then check out my book, Sorry Vet Now What? or Non-Clinical Skills Training Class of the same name. Until next time, take care.